Hey, and good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd also like to welcome you all to ACBC, whether you're here in person. Thank you for being here or watching us online. Uh, we are continuing a series that we're calling New. Uh, we ran out of names, really, for series, so it's just a new series. And we're looking at what Jesus did, the extent that he went to start something new on how he wants us to follow him, how he wants us to represent God in this world. Now, I've been a pastor for a little while now, and, and long enough to see a few new innovations that have happened in the New Zealand uh, church world, but because you all have a life outside of church and friends and hobbies and stuff, and I don't, you probably don't pay as much attention to these new movements as I have, so I'm going to just share a few with you just to kind of keep you up on short church history here in New Zealand. From 1950 to 1970s, there wasn't a lot of change. Everything was kind of the same. Not a lot of new movement in the church. There were bricks. There was stained glass. Uh, huge podiums and pastors with long, long robes with lots of academic letters after their name giving very, very, very long sermons. But in the mid-60s, this new movement happened. It was a charismatic movement. And, and it began to swell, and people kind of left the liturgical way of worship for a more spontaneous way of worship, a little more emotional way of worship. And a lot of churches popped up during that time. But they moved from bricks and mortar to like old DECA buildings. And, and they took over old warehouses and storefronts, leaving the stained glass behind. Then in the mid-'80s, in the mid-'80s, pastors started noticing something in this whole charismatic movement, that the people who were getting out of their wheelchairs healed on a Sunday night uh, during ministry time were the same people that were getting out of the same wheelchairs every single Sunday night. And we started talking, and people started talking around little uh, kind of pastor meetings. And the reality is these pastors just really wanted people to meet Jesus, not to put on a spectacle so another movement kind of sweeped through New Zealand uh, to kind of help people know who Jesus was. It was called the seeker-friendly movement. Now, seeker-friendly movement turned the church service into a bit of a show, really. Uh, uh, there was coffee that was served at churches, and oh my goodness, after about nine elders' meetings, you could actually bring the coffee in the worship center and drink it during the church service. Um, music was like a concert, and, and sermons were a lot shorter, and there was uh, lights and smoke and laser shows, and big muscly guys called the power team would come in and tear phone books in half and break bats as the power of God made them tear phone books in half. <laughs> there was drama and there was laughter and there was movie clips that were shown to illustrate different kinds of illustrations. And then it started getting a little bit out of hand. People started getting more creative. They wanted to grab people's attention. Church started to overshadow the gospel with a bunch of gimmicks. For instance, have a look at this video to show you how far it could go. I told you if we broke attendance records, I'd get the church logo tattooed on my arm. Skip, remember back when we first started? All we did was preach the gospel. Ooh, Superman works. I like Superman. Guy, what do you think? What happened to you? Me? Your dad is the one with the gimmicks. The power of the Holy Spirit propels us. I just want the church to get back to the gospel. Problem is you're trying to get your message across. Uh, the gospel? Right, right, right. And ain't nobody listening to that. A good Friday and Easter. I need something big. Amen? Bigger than the resurrection. Bigger than anything we've ever done. 
national headlines. Preach on the death and resurrection of Jesus. An actual crucifixion. Uh-oh. By placing the nails through your palms in the right place, we hope to avoid major nerve damage. Operation stop, skip as a go. That's awesome. You have to cancel this good Friday stunt. Don't be so dramatic, honey. Ooh, I like the rusty ones. What are you gonna do? I told him he's insane. I've been praying for you about that toe fungus. This could be beneficial for all parties involved. We foster a yes environment here. to marry you and you can be my wife. I have an answer for you. <laughs> That's from a movie that came out last year. And um, it kind of looked at how far churches would go to try and create these environments to make people feel relaxed enough to eventually hear about Jesus. And so... These movements happen through church, and you know a lot of cool stuff came out of it, and amazing new environments happen. Most churches have cafes now. Most churches have children's areas that are, are painted and lit up and inviting and welcoming and fun for kids. Uh, and the lights and the bands, the smoke, all those kind of stuff, shorter sermons, amen to that. All that kind of good stuff started happening, and then COVID came, and COVID just kind of wiped the slate clean, and, and it kind of uh, moved people from attending for Jesus to attending to stand against things, kind of wound people up a little bit, and, and how we're going to stand against certain types of people or certain types of politics or certain types of lifestyles. And with all this stuff going in the life of the church, there's people who have had some bad church experiences. There's people that talk about their bad church experiences. There's people in a society that have kind of learned to not really like those people called Christians. And often they have good reasons to feel that way. So this is what we're going to do. In our new series, we're going to look at the fact that most of the time, most of the things that people oppose about church are actually things that the church should already be opposing. That most of the things that people generally resist about church are actually the things that the church should already be resisting. We're going to talk about some of those things over the next few weeks, and it's going to get interesting. It's going to get, interesting. It's going to get a little bit emotional. It, it, it might get a little bit upsetting, but we're okay with that, right? We've been, that, we've been through that before. We can handle that kind of stuff. But think about it this way. From an outsider's perspective, someone who's not a church person, someone who doesn't call themselves a follower of Jesus, from an outsider's perspective, what do they think church is? What even is the church? What's it all about? I mean, from an outsider's perspective, what they should see is something that should be about what the church really is more than what they talk about. Really, when they look at a church, what they should see is a group of people of people doing the best they can to follow a teacher, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, sent from God to clear a path to God. That's what they should see. 
They should see pretty much any outsider should look at it by observation and by reputation and by the way people talk about churches in their neighborhoods. They should simply see a community of people who follow the teachings of a man sent from God, because that's what we believe as Christians, that Jesus was sent by God, to follow the teachings of this man, the Son of God, to explain God to the world, to clear the path to God, because that's essentially what churches are about. So what's there to oppose about that? I mean, you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to. You don't have to like it. But people shouldn't dislike it unless there's something more to it. That's what we're going to explore. There are, not only are we a community of people who have committed to following Jesus, to try and follow him and learn how to follow God and trust God, explain God, when Jesus came, his primary message, his primary, here's what I want you to do now, his top three commandments before he went back to heaven was in fact only just one commandment with three different applications and how to follow him. And when you look at it, oh, it's threatening. When you look at it, it's offensive, but maybe not to the outsiders. It's simply love. Love God, love each other, and love your enemy. Love the people that are different from you. Love the people that you don't know much about. What's to oppose about that? What is there to resist about that activity? See, in fact, um, there should be nothing, absolutely nothing offensive about the church except for one thing. And that is our loyalty to Jesus Christ. See, for the first 300 years of Christendom, that's how it was. For the first 300 years of the church, the church existed for the first 300 years. The primary thing that people went, oh, for goodness sake. The primary thing that people resisted and opposed and laughed at people in the church was exactly that. See, people persecuted Christians. The reason Christians were persecuted was because they said, Caesar is not our king. Jesus is our king. And Caesar didn't like that. And Nero didn't like that. So the reason Christians were persecuted wasn't because they were weird. wasn't because of their music. wasn't because they were judgmental. It wasn't because they put people off. It wasn't because they were exclusive in a club that no one could break into. It was because they said, hey, as nice as we can possibly be, as community-minded, as, as much as we are, at the end of the day, we believe Jesus is king. And they said that in a kingdom where there was already a king, and that just didn't go over very well. Yet the first century, the second century, the third century church thrived, thrived in spite of the fact that there was resistance. Imagine that. Wouldn't it be cool, right here in Hamilton, wouldn't it be cool that if the only bad thing people had to say about us, the only bad thing they had to say about our church and that ACBC group over there was that actually when you get down to it, those ACBC guys, they're actually pretty good people. They're actually great neighbors. They're really good bosses. In fact, I would actually love my daughter to marry one. I would love my son to marry one. They treat everybody so well. They treat women with so much honor and respect. They're, I mean, they're amazing. Everything about them is amazing, except they believe this one weird thing. They actually think Jesus was the son of God. I, I just can't handle that. Wouldn't it be amazing if that's the only thing people could say that resisted how we live? I mean, wouldn't it be great if the only thing people complained about is that we had this extraordinary devotion to Jesus Christ? 
And we talked about it. But in my lifetime, I have never, ever, ever heard anybody say that the reason they resist church, the reason they don't like Christians, is because they follow that Jesus guy. It's always about other stuff. I've never heard that. And I, like you, have heard thousands, thousands of reasons why we come across as offensive. See, the church, us, the people you're sitting next to, we should be irresistible, except for the fact that we believe in Jesus. And he's the son of God. See, it's okay if people are offended by that. It's okay. Jesus said, they'll actually hate you because they hated me first. But anything else that's offensive, that might be something that we should be getting offended at as well. And something we ought to be changing as well. Uh, when I was a pastor in Auckland, this uh, young professional guy named Patrick started coming. He came with a couple of friends to church, came on our Sunday nights. He worked in the city, came with these business guys, they kind of wore their their suits and ties, because they actually worked on the weekends, and they'd come in. And he came in, and after a few weeks, he came in and introduced himself to me. He goes, look, i got to tell you this thing. I've been coming here for about, at that point, about five weeks. He goes, the stuff you present on a Sunday night is so much better than the live seminars that HR at my company spends thousands and thousands of dollars to produce for us once a term. And you do it every single week. And then his words, best I can remember them, he says, who doesn't want to live a life the way you describe it? Who doesn't want to live their life better? And who doesn't want to live a better kind of life? And he goes, the stuff you teach out of the Bible is amazing. He goes, I'm not sure about Jesus yet, but the stuff you teach out of that Bible book, that is amazing stuff. See, when you simply decide to follow the teachings of Jesus, regardless of what you want to say about him being the man, the son of God, regardless if you haven't come to a conclusion that says, yeah, he is the son of God. If, if you never, ever see him as the savior of the world, but if you are someone who takes his teachings seriously, who embraces those teachings and applies them to the way you do life, your life will be better. And you will be better at life. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? So why is it that we have empty seats on a Sunday? Why is it that churches all around the world since COVID have empty seats on a Sunday? Why is it that we have life groups that have two empty couches in their living room and four empty chairs around their dinner table when they all get together? How did we become so forgettable? How do we become so resistible? How is it that there are actually things that people say about us, the reasons that they don't like us, that have nothing to do with Jesus at all and him being our ultimate authority? Where did all this offensive stuff come from? What happened is it possible, is it possible that the offensive factor of the church is not a result of these new things and gimmicks that we've tried to add and stuff being added, but it's actually the result of some of the old stuff, the old things that should have got left behind, the old stuff that Jesus came to deal with has kind of been added back in. Now, let me explain what I mean. And that was just the introduction. You ready for a long morning? No, it's not going to be a long morning. 
I want to introduce you an idea that kind of sets the framework for the rest of the series, and then we'll kind of dive into it from here. I want to introduce you to the idea of this thing called the temple system, all right? The temple system pretty much represents all religions all around the world. It represents religions in every single different country of this world. It goes way back to ancient Egypt and Assyria and Babylons and, and Persians and Greeks and the Romans and the Jewish temple system. Uh, just as a few examples, see the this temple system has four components to it. And the four components of a temple system is that there's always a sacred place, a sacred building, a sacred temple. There are always sacred texts there are always sacred men, and then there are always sincere followers. Now, I wanted to do a different word than sincere, but I was getting to a zone. I thought they should all be S's, so I came up with sincere. Um, I almost put down superstitious because there is superstition around it, but it's actually more about people trying to be sincere and following what these sacred men say, these sacred texts are about in these sacred places. So in the temple model, you always have a sacred place. It's somewhere in that sacred place are housed sacred texts or sacred oracles or sacred inscriptions. And then those sacred texts are always controlled by, always interpreted by, always read by sacred men. Always men. And these sacred men... They then tell all the sincere followers, all those superstitious people, all the believers of whatever religion you're gathering around, they say, this is how you're supposed to live your life. This is how you better live your life. And if you don't live your life this way, God will judge you. He will punish you. And ultimately, it could be for eternity. Even in the mud hut regions of our world today, you still find temple systems. If you go out to just about any kind of region of the world, you're going to find some of the most powerful people in these little villages, in these communities, is the witch doctor. And the witch doctor has a place that everybody fears to go. And there's no signs, there's no fences and borders, but there are well-placed skulls and kind of talismans and trinkets and stuff that nobody will go there because it is a sacred place. And with the witch doctor, you can get the witch doctor to fix you or to heal you or to curse your enemy. And the witch doctor controls the truth and controls the manifestations of how that truth is lived out and controls uh, how people are supposed to live and what they're supposed to do in their regions with that truth. But on the other spectrum... You have, in other places like Syria and Iraq and stuff, you have other sacred places with some other sacred texts, with sacred men interpreting and writing what those sacred texts are about, asking people to do what those of us in the Western world think is absolutely horrendous. We think what they do is an affront to God. But in their minds, in their minds, they're just being consistent with what they've been taught. They're being consistent with what they've been taught by the sacred men who control and interpret those ancient texts in those sacred places. So the temple model is alive and well in this world. And we're going to discover that it's also very alive and well in our local churches, in a Baptist church. See, the temple system grants extraordinary power to sacred men. It's always men. 
few churches let out few women, but it's always men in sacred places who determine the meaning of a sacred text. Now, if you're looking around yourself right now and you're sitting here listening to me, you're thinking, but isn't that what we got going on here? Isn't that exactly what's happening right here at HCBC? I mean, we got this sacred place, right? We got this building, and we hear stories of how much people worked and, and, and donated and sacrificed for this huge building, bigger church than most people have building. We've got sacred texts. I'm up here reading from Scripture, and we got sacred texts on my iPad and in your Bibles and on your phones and on the screen. Um, and, and I'm saying, look, here, this is what the Bible says. This is what it means. And every once in a while, to show off a little bit, I throw a little Greek your way, right? Throw a little Greek word at you, uh, causing you to question what? you're reading your English Bible, why do I even have an English Bible if it doesn't actually mean what it says? You just told me the Greek word means something totally different from what it says right here in English. I guess he knows what he's talking about. I guess Brian's got that little doctrine. I guess he knows what he's talking about. And then I kind of throw a twist your way, right? And a twist in meaning and a twist in application. And you kind of sit there and you take notes. I see phones taking pictures of screens and stuff. And I mean, kind of sounds like a temple system to me. Kind of sounds like that's what we're doing, running it right here at HCBC. So what we're going to do through the rest of this series is that even though some of the temple system has kind of trickled in to churches, to the New Testament church, into this gathering that we call the followers of Jesus, it shouldn't be that way. See, the arrival of Jesus... The arrival of Jesus signaled the end to the temple model. And not just for ancient Jews. It signaled the end of the temple model for everybody everywhere in the entire world, on the entire planet. In fact, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he calls his closest followers together. and He says, look, I know you love Jerusalem. I know you do. I know there's a lot of cool stuff happening here, and you've been seeing a lot of cool stuff happen here, but I need you to leave. I want you to go. I don't want you to just go to other areas where there are other Jews living either. I want you to go to every single ethnic group on the world. I want you to tell them what you've seen. I want you to tell them what you've heard. And, and because this message, the reason I have come is for everybody, Jesus says, Everywhere. And then Jesus, when he signaled the end to this temple model, it was the beginning of something entirely, entirely new. Entirely new. How new? Entirely new. So entirely new that there would be no more sacred places. Because Jesus would teach that you are sacred. And you are sacred, and you are sacred, and you are sacred, and you are sacred. That when you're standing on what you consider to be the most sacred place you've ever stood, or sitting in one of the most sacred buildings you have ever sat in, that you wouldn't be fooled, and that you would remember that the person to your left right now, and the person to your right right now, and the person behind you right now, and the person sitting in front of you right now, is more sacred to God than any piece of dirt you will ever stand on. Any building you may ever visit. There are no more sacred places. And there would be no more special people 
who have full power and full control of other people. You would no longer need a high priest, Jesus says. You would no longer need anyone to tell you how to please God. That you would never ever be a time when you went to a place and you needed someone else to beseech God on your behalf. That's not needed. Nobody else needs to go before you to make things right with God for you. And the sacred text, the Old Testament text, would be completely, entirely fulfilled. Jesus would say that with a single verb, a single word was the beginning of something that was brand spanking new. It wasn't temple version 2.0. It was a complete departure. How do we know this? Because one day, one day the disciples were going for a walk, and they were heading up to Caesarea Philippi, two different names for the same city, Philippi. The name changed. They changed the name of that city about when Jesus was getting his learner license. And, and they changed the city to Caesarea Philippi to honor Caesar Augustus. So they're talking about that. And they're talking about Caesar Augustus. And in the midst of that conversation, Jesus says, well, we know who Caesar is. Who do people say I am? And they start going, oh, well, like, we hear people saying that they think that you are like the reincarnation of John the Baptist, and others think that you are a prophet that's been reincarnated. Then Jesus says, okay, guys, well, who do you say I am? And good old Peter steps right up to the front and goes, I think you're the Messiah. I got it right. I got it right. I got it right. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one the whole New Testament points to. I think you're the Messiah, he says. I think you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. That is who I am. And and the reason you know that is because God told you that. You didn't come up with that on your own, Jesus says. And then listen to what he says. He says this. And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock, on this declaration that you are the Christ, that on this declaration that you know that I am the son of the living God, I will build, future tense, I will build my church. And unfortunately, we got that little word in that verse in our English Bibles that entered the English New Testament, that word church. And it's been a problem ever since. See, it actually is a Greek word, showing off a little bit called ecclesia all right ecclesia it actually means gathering it means assembly it means congregation and in this moment jesus is beginning the beginning of something entirely new not as a sacred place not as a sacred group of people that have some kind of instant insight kind of knowledge jesus announced the beginning of a brand new movement a brand new movement in fact the very first english translation of the bible that word church does not exist william tyndale had the guts to not follow popular demand and not be politically correct and he had the guts to translate ecclesia into the world word of what it really means. And he wrote, in the very first English Bible, he wrote, congregation. Jesus announced a brand new gathering where all people are welcome. And Tyndale, for writing congregation instead of church, he was burned at the stake for that. Burned at the stake. And then after that, some super smart people swooped in and controlled everything. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. And they said, you know what? 
We're not going to use congregation. In fact, I like a better word. We're going to use this German word. It's a German word that means house, house of the Lord. All right, house of the Lord. I don't know what accent that was. <laughs> house of the Lord. And it means, it means that this word ecclesia actually means a specific place. It means a sacred place, house of the Lord. And we're going to take that German word and we're going to insert it into an English-speaking Bible. And that's where we get the word church from. And that's why when you think church, you think place. And that's why we say things like, I'm going to go to church. How do you like your church? Oh, parking's kind of bad. And that's what we talk about, Right? See, when you think church, you think sacred space. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's no more sacred places. There's no more sacred spaces. I'm going to build a group of people. I'm going to build a congregation, a gathering of people, and I will be with them wherever they are. I will be with them wherever they go. And this brand new day, this brand new area, I'm launching something entirely new. So he established a brand new covenant a covenant just means arrangement. He established a whole new arrangement, uh, an arrangement with God, that in this new arrangement, in this new covenant, you used to have to have a high priest. You used to have to go to someone um, to go to God on your behalf, and Jesus says, not anymore. I'm giving you a brand new covenant. The old approach to God, that's done. That's old school. Regardless of your religion, regardless of the name over your temple, regardless of the deity or deities that you think you're worshiping, a new day has come and God, Yahweh, has opened the way He's opened the way for everybody to approach him directly. For all of humankind. Because of the final sacrifice for sin that he had to do was about to be made known. And here's what he said. Jesus gathered the disciples. Toward, toward the end of his ministry. And he says this. He says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup. And the disciples were sitting there going, what in the world is he talking about? They had no idea what he was talking about. He says, this cup is a new covenant. Now, they understood the word covenant. They're good Jewish boys, right? They knew that God had come to establish a covenant with Israel. And, and, and they're thinking, we're already in a covenant. We already got a good covenant. It's like with God, the creator of the universe. Why do we need a new covenant? They're kind of whispering to each other. And, and Jesus kind of says, just hang on, boys, hang on. Tonight, I'm establishing a brand new covenant in my blood. And they're like, excuse me? Excuse me? How can you establish a covenant in your blood? I mean, we're sitting here right here. We see you. You are not bleeding. They were not smart guys. Guys mature later than ladies, remember? So they're young guys. And they're so confused. And they're thinking, but they're thinking, we don't get it. And then later on, soon after that, they're standing there. And they watch them bleed. And they watch them die on that cross. And they go, I get it. I get it. See, that final sacrifice for sin was not just the sin of the Jews. It was the sin of the world. It was for everybody. 
And then Jesus gives this new meaning and new significance to the sacred text. He says, I got a new covenant. Let me help you understand the sacred text. He goes, one day he was teaching. And when Jesus said this, the crowd went silent. When he said what I'm about to show you that he said, the crowd went, what? What? And these were the kind of things that he would say that people would try to stone him for. And he says this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. Do not think that I've come to wipe them out. I have come to fulfill them. Big statement. Big silence. Jesus claimed that the entire Old Testament funneled down to him as a person. That Jesus claimed that all the prophets, they were actually prophesying about me, he says. All the deeds of the Old Testament somehow reflected forward towards his arrival. Jesus said that I'm fulfilling the whole Old Testament law. The law leads to me and the law ends with me. The Old Testament was just like direction signs. They were just road signs pointing you in my direction. Who would say that? Who would say that? He's saying that it's all the Old Testament stories, all the poetry, all the richness, the entire New Testament, it was like a cocoon. It was a cocoon. And from that cocoon, the Savior of the world was birthed. And while the cocoon played a really important role in history, an extraordinary role in the faith and the life of God's people, Jewish people, once it was finished, it was done. It was finished. And Jesus says, it's finished because I've completed it. I have fulfilled all of it. I've come to replace the law. But, you know, humans, we still need behavioral guardrails, right? And Jesus says, look, I'm going to make it easier. It's not going to be the 630 laws that you all try to memorize that nobody can remember. In fact, it's even going to be more simple than the Ten Commandments. Jesus came and instituted a brand new ethic, all right, a brand new movement-defining ethic. And we're going to talk more about this in about three weeks. But this verse that highlights the ethic, you have heard it a thousand times. But for the Jewish people at that point, it was so significant. So significant. He gathered his closest followers and he said to them, John 13, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. And they're like, yeah, I get it. That's no big deal. But then he goes on. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this you will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And when he said, as I have loved you, you must love one another, they knew exactly what he meant. This was not like random acts of kindness month. Right? This was not hold the door open as people are coming in and out of a building. This was not take a meal to someone when they're sick. It was a lot deeper than that. Because right before he said this, Jesus the rabbi took off his outer, climb, outer uh, garments, took the position of a slave, wrapped a towel around his waist, got on his hands and knees, and he washed his disciples' stinking feet. And they were so uncomfortable. They were so uncomfortable. The hands that healed people, the hands that picked up mud, spit and put mud in people's eyes and they could see. The hands that embraced Lazarus who was once dead and he rose from the, from the dead and is now standing before them. He takes those very same hands and he washes their feet. And Peter goes, no way. No, you cannot wash my feet. And Jesus says, sit down. Sit down, Peter. I'm going to wash your feet. 
And Jesus did for them what not a single one of them would do for each other. Jesus did for them what not a single one of them would ever dream of doing for each other. And then he just gets up and he puts his outer garment back on and he says, now what I have done for you, this is what I want you to do for one another. And then he goes, guys, I'm about to go. And when I go, and you start thinking you're a big shot, Guys, when people start sitting at your feet and they listen to what you have to say because they know you were with me. Guys, in those moments when all of a sudden you're surrounded by a crowd because you're one of the people that was closest to Jesus and they know that. In those moments when you think you're something and your chest gets all big and you feel all significant, remember this night. You will never be greater than your master. And your master just washed your feet. And Jesus took the entire leadership paradigm and he flipped it upside down in such a way that they will never forget. It was like he was saying, when you start thinking you're something special, when you start thinking you're one of those sacred people, when you start thinking you're more special than anyone else, or you're more special than everyone else, when you start acting entitled because you deserve to get what you want in your sacred church because you've earned it, or you built it, or you have been here for so long, or you have served it for so long, when you start thinking that way, you need to go get a towel and wash some more feet. Because that's how we live. Jesus, that's how my movement is going to look. And he said to them, he said, by this, by what you just experienced, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples. If you love the way I just loved you. And he said, because I just washed your feet, I have given you an example of what it means to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my follower if you love one another. And this love, this one-word verb, would replace law-keeping. The self-sacrifice would now replace animal sacrifice. The vertical, you and God, would now be measured by the horizontal, how you love one another. The evidence that you are a follower of Jesus isn't how well you pray isn't how much you give, isn't how much you serve, isn't how consistently you attend church. It's how well you love people who are difficult for you to love. To the point that Jesus even said, if you are at the temple and you're about to make a sacrifice to make things right between you and God, and it dawns on you that you're not actually right with your brother or your sister, God can wait. God can wait. Leave your sacrifice and go make things right with the person that things are not right with. This isn't simply temple model 2.0. This is the beginning of something entirely different. See, the arrival of Jesus signaled the end, kaput, of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. No more sacred places. No more special people. 
the Old Testament would be fulfilled and the laws reduced to one single four-letter word. Love. The entire law reduced to one single verb. Love. And it would be applied to God, and it would be applied to each other, and it would be applied to your neighbors, to your enemies, to people you don't know very well. And after the resurrection, the church got started, and it was amazing, amazing. And the miracles, and, and the life changed, and it swept so far and so wide, and so many nations were changed. But somehow, temple thinking kind of blended into Jesus' following thinking. And some of the things that should have been left behind got blended kind of blended in. And some traditions and, and some attitudes and the way some people thought were so tied to the old way, the old temple way, that they just couldn't let go of the old way. And somehow they had to kind of force temple thinking into the Jesus following thing and pretend like it was the same. And unfortunately, it's still happening. And temple thinking is still part of the church today. And I think it's for that reason that we're opposed by people who don't know Jesus. That's why people resist what we think we're standing for. And that's what we're going to figure out. We're going to figure this out. We're going to let go of everything that's holding us back. And we're going to do and we're going to be our best by God's grace to fully embrace what Jesus had in mind and what he said it meant to be his follower. And it's going to be something new. And it's going to be for every one of us. Because Jesus says, what you saw in me and what you've heard me teach and what we've read that he teaches in scripture, it works for everybody, everywhere, regardless of prior religious traditions. And so by God's grace, I think perhaps in this generation, I hope so, we can strip away, and this is the year to begin stripping away Things that make the church of Jesus Christ so easy to resist. So easy to be opposed. But for that to happen, don't miss next week. Be here if you can. Watch it online if you have to. And come listen to your sacred pastor. (laughs) Open up some sacred texts and tell you things you've never heard before. And get you to do things you never thought you would do. Father God, thank you for the extreme lengths you went to show us your love. Thank you, Jesus, for the extreme lengths you went to be obedient to your Father and to clear the path so we can know him as our Father as well, to explain to us what his love is all about and to wipe away all the stuff that gets in the way of us and God's love. Father God, I ask that you would give us the courage to understand scripture and what it means to live for you. Jesus, I ask that you would be so clear to us that we can um, understand what you've told us to be and do as your followers. And Holy Spirit, give us the willingness to consider and the courage to try and kind of transform us from the inside out so that we are people who don't cause resistance from others and don't cause opposition from others but instead make people think why why do they think Jesus is God 
then they start their own journey in finding Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.